Hi, and welcome to Your Own Podcast. I'm Dr. Melanie Barham, a coordinator for the Ontario Animal Health Network, and I'm joined today by Dr. Michelle Evison, who's going to be doing a great review about Lyme disease in companion animals. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks, Melanie, and uh, let's uh, reestablish expectations. I'm not sure it will be great, but I will certainly do my very best. <laughs> I, I have high expectations. I think it'll be good. <laughs> So, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your work with Lyme disease, and uh, and your background? Sure thing. So I'm from Winnipeg originally, and I did both my DVM and my internal medicine residency training at the WCVM in Saskatoon. And then I went to the United States to work in private referral practice along with academia. Um, then I took a position as a consultant in the pet food industry, first with Royal Canin Canada and currently for Rain Clinical Nutrition. For the Lyme work aspect of that question, well, I was recently involved in a project looking at infectious disease risk to dogs in group settings, so dog shows, agility events, people taking their dogs to dog parks where there will be other dogs congregating, and Lyme or Borrelia was identified as a key pathogen of concern. And that wasn't all too surprising for us due to all the controversy, the human emotion, and the questions surrounding Lyme in both animals as well as people. And then that project led to a research grant looking at a few really critical clinical questions related to canine Lyme that we just don't have a great handle on. So things like disease prevalence or how often is Lyme disease really occurring in dogs, what's the likelihood of clinical illness associated with being Lyme positive on testing, what's the prognosis and the clinical outcome in these dogs, and then the other area of research focus for our group was to look at owner and veterinary behaviors to prevention of Borrelia or Lyme infection. So why aren't we doing a better job of tick prevention, we as veterinarians in clinics, and what are the barriers to effective tick prevention? Okay, and these are was the study conducted in the United States or in Canada? It's going to be in both. Okay. Well, we definitely have the right person on the line then, I think, for the next question. So what clinical signs have been associated with Lyme disease in dogs? Yeah, it's it's a really great question, and I think before I answer it specifically, I think it's really important to be aware that there's a series of ifs that have to occur before disease or even the question of whether Lyme disease truly is or more often isn't occurring in a given dog even arises. Because while it's true that Borrelia infection does happen in dogs, the criteria for making that clinical diagnosis of Lyme disease is also really, really important. And when I refer to Lyme disease, I'm talking about true clinical disease and associated illness or clinical signs. I'm not talking about seroprevalence or a positive test results. And those are two really different things. I hope that makes sense. Yep. Um, just to break it down into a more clinical context, which is what I care about because I am a clinician and also a sequence of events, this is kind of what's possible if a tick or an exodes tick, because those are the ticks that are infected with Borrelia, bites and then it stays attached to a dog long enough for it to become infected. So door number one is nothing, right? So there's no transmission of Borrelia species to that dog, and the dog stays seronegative on testing and doesn't become ill with Lyme disease, so it doesn't develop clinical signs. Door number two as a possibility would be, yes, there's transmission of Borrelia to the dog, but the dog's immune system successfully eliminates the bacteria and there is no disease that develops, so no clinical signs. However, that dog would likely be seropositive on testing because it would mount an antibody response, but it wouldn't be developing Lyme disease-related illness. 
And then finally, which is what your question actually was, sorry, (laughs) there could possibly be transmission of Borrelia to the dog and development of clinical illness or actual clinical Lyme disease. And again, that's a dog that would be seropositive on testing because it would develop antibodies, and that's what the tests measure. So for me, a positive test result for Borrelia does not equal a clinical diagnosis of Lyme disease. And that can be a really tough thing to understand because, you know, there's a test, it was positive, there's a dot, oh, my God, oh, my God. And it's really hard for pet owners and also for clinic staff. Um, I kind of use more of a template to make a clinical diagnosis, and that's what a lot of the, or that is what the consensus group for Lyme, the internal medicine consensus group, recommends. And it, it kind of goes a little bit like this when you're trying to make that clinical diagnosis of is there Lyme disease in this dog and does it have clinical signs. So number one is a clinical history. So has the dog been to or traveled to or does it currently live in a known Lyme endemic area or an area where the exodes tick is established? Um, Has there been tick exposure? Physical exam results, so are there consistent clinical signs? Doing your job, making a problem list, and crossing other things that cause similar clinical signs off that list. The diagnosis part, so was there documented seropositivity on a test to Borrelia? And then if all of those things are answered, looking at therapeutic response. So if you met the above criteria and that led you to treat with antimicrobials, doxycycline, and it really is Borrelia or Lyme disease, that dog should get better pretty fast, so within 48 hours, usually sooner. Okay, and, then, and if there's, sorry, I guess maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but so no, if they no. don't get, if there's no change within 48 hours, would you pull them off the antibiotics or? Yeah, that's a really good question too, and I think my initial reaction to that is no, because there are other vector-borne or tick-borne diseases that can cause similar clinical signs for which doxycycline is effective, but it would be making me less likely to think that Borrelia or Lyme is the cause. And so then to skip back and, again, get at your actual question, which I'm sorry, I have a habit of rambling sometimes, clinical signs for true Lyme disease kind of fall into two groups. And it's a little bit of a hard one because it's hard for me to say common clinical signs of Lyme because Lyme's not common, right? So there are a lot of dogs that can become seropositive or test positive on a test, but Of that group of dogs that test positive, 95% of them have no clinical signs. And only 5% of dogs who are infected or become seropositive ever develop clinical signs. At least that's what we think. And those clinical signs consist of things like acute fever, so for us Canadians who use Celsius, um, 39.5 to 40.5 degrees Celsius. And then for those of us that use Fahrenheit, 103.1 to 104.9 polyarthropathy or a shifting limb lamus, and then nonspecific signs that represent feeling crummy, like lethargy or decrease in appetite. So is co-infection in the household, people or other cats or other animals, um, frequent? Yeah, it's a really good question, too, and and I think it's something that's really confusing for us because Lyme is often referred to as being a zoonotic disease, and It's a term that really actually, the term zoonosis and Lyme together really annoys my husband. He's an epi-zoonosis guy, but it makes me laugh because I think it's yet another example of how people can define things so differently because while people can get Lyme and dogs can get Lyme, Borrelia isn't something that can be transmitted directly from dogs to people or from people Mm -hmm. to dogs. Um, Basically, any 
warm-blooded creature, we think, that can have an exodes tick attached to it, can get Borrelia infection. Cats are less likely to be infected or develop disease. We're not really sure why that is. Some people speculate that it's due to their grooming, so they may remove ticks more quickly, right? And so they don't let them attach or stay attached long enough to transmit the pathogen. Mm, okay. You know, this topic, we seem to be hearing so much about Lyme recently. In the past year or so, it seems to be exploding. I guess I'd be interested to know kind of what's switched in the Lyme landscape in the past little while. No, I, I agree with you. We are hearing a lot more about Lyme, and uh, I think you're absolutely right. The other way of phrasing that question is, is Lyme really emerging in Canada? And, and what we all want to know, where is it? And I think I'm going to keep it pretty short and sweet and say, yeah, it's here. It's in Canada. There's going to be more and more of it every year, and, and people love to travel, right? So they are going to these endemic areas. One of the really awesome parts of my job is that I get to do consults for veterinarians, clinic staff, and veterinary specialists all across Canada. And I get calls and emails from all parts of Canada where vets are getting dogs that are seropositive for Lyme. And we know that the exodes tick that carries Borrelia has become established in southeastern and south central Canada, so specifically Ontario, Manitoba, as well as parts of the Maritimes like New Brunswick. There's actually something in CVJ about that just today. And we also know that the exodes tick is moving and its habitat is expanding. And so we're finding dogs that are seropositive for Lyme in parts of Canada where we haven't seen it before, including a few hot spots. Right. Okay, and then so let's talk about the diagnosis a bit, because uh, if, if, yep. I think that's a really challenging area. Um, so how how is Lyme diagnosed, and what diagnostic options are currently available, and if there's any new ones, please feel free to tell us. Yeah, that's a, that is a, a really key question, and, and I think there's a couple ways to answer it. One would be that if you have a dog that comes in with fever and polyarthropathy, diagnostics that you would perform are things like a complete blood count, a serum biochemistry, a urinalysis, and potentially joint taps, along with looking at tests that are specific for Lyme or Borrelia seropositivity, depending on your area. So, you know, there's the non-definitive tests, which are part of doing an appropriate workup on a dog that has these signs, so polyarthropathy and fever, so the CBC biochem urinalysis. And then there are the more specific things, which if you think this is a dog that might have Lyme disease, what are the best tests to look at making that diagnosis? Yeah. And those are different things a little bit. So if you have a dog with you with history and physical exam findings, you've crossed the other things off your list, like orthopedic disease. When I was in Boston, I had a lot of suspect Lyme retrievers that ended up having bilateral ACL tears. Mm. Um, <laughs> any of these tests, like the SNAP40X, the Acuplex, the Multiplex, and the vet scan are really good at telling you whether Borrelia antibodies are present. Okay. All right. So can we go back to the maybe the beginning part? So we'll talk about the non-specific test first, and then maybe yep. if we can kind of do a review of the specific test for uh, for Lyme disease or for Borrelia, that'd be fantastic. Sure. Um, okay. So what would you see on a CBC? So if you were doing a complete blood count and you had a dog that came in that ended up having Lyme, right? Because you don't know where you're going, right? And, yeah. and uh, I used to have a mentor in Saskatoon that always used to say things to me like, you don't know what you're going to find until you run the test, which was seriously not helpful. But I got what he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Save advice. Yeah. Always I, true. <laughs> yes. And, uh, 
we all have to remember our mentors and how they help us out. And so that, again, is one of the things that is, is really challenging about this disease because it, it, it depends what you think you have and it depends where you live and it depends what your physical findings are, right? Like, does it mm-hmm. all add up to a clinical index of suspicion that this could be Lyme disease? And, and I think you've got to do your job and cross other things off the list once you make that problem list of a dog that, A, comes from an endemic or emerging area where Exodes and Borrelia together have been found. If they have physical exam findings like polyarthropathy or fever, and and also if your specific test was positive. And, and I think it becomes really hard, and, and you'll have to drag me back if I'm wandering off topics, because those aren't usually the dogs that we're having a conversation about Lyme about. Usually the conversation is, I did a general health screen because I wanted to see if heartworm was present, and I tested this healthy dog, and it came up positive. Yeah. And, and those are really different population absolutely yeah i'm I'm hoping that we do get to talk about that because it's um i think that's something that's on a lot of people's mind um but uh, yeah i did i did wonder if we'd be able to chat about um so let's say that you had a dog that had clinical signs of of lyme disease and was Mm -hmm. in in some kind of area that that would be suspicious for it um do you think we could run through some of the like the right like the non-specific tests and see what you might expect to see like what would lead you to be suspicious Absolutely. So, so again, that clinical criteria is, and, and I know I keep coming back to it, and likely it's boring and repetitive. I have people say that to me a lot, but I think it's, again, important, <laughs> right? <laughs> Usually my family, but sometimes others. So I have a lot of regular people, and I just hear them sigh in the background. Oh, there goes Evison again. So, number one, clinical history. So, has this dog traveled to or does it currently live in a known Lyme endemic area? So is there Lyme in your area, right? What's your index of suspicion? Um, your physical exam, so are there consistent clinical signs? Is this a totally healthy dog and or does this dog have a shifting limb lameness and fever? And, you know, what are other possible causes for this? And if one of those is Lyme based on history and physical exam, then testing with one of those more specific tests to document Borrelia seropositivity is important. If you're doing, you know, the other part of this, like you've got an ill dog with polyarthropathy and a fever, and you're, it ends up being Lyme, again, kind of a, a lot of ifs, as I keep saying, CBC, it might be totally normal, or it might reveal inflammation or low white cells, right, like leukopenia, sometimes thrombocytopenia, usually mild might be present, and that gets hard because some of these dogs end up having Borrelia, and some of them have co-pathogen infections as well, um, because these exodes ticks, they often carry other things, but but it is a very real concern for this workup of a vector-borne disease. Biochemistry, again, might be completely nonspecific for inflammation, so things like decreased albumin, concurrent low hypocalcemia, increased globulins, and then there might be changes associated with feeling crummy, so like vomiting or dehydration. And urinalysis might be totally normal, um, or there might be proteinuria, and those are the ones to worry about, and that's a- another topic. Um, joint taps, if people end up doing joint taps, those might be normal too, or they might be consistent with a real separative inflammation with higher cell counts, mainly neutrophils. 
Um, and again, for a dog with polyarthropathy or shifting limb lameness, it's important to remember that you need to tap more than one joint because not all of them might be affected, be and, and then again, multiple samples are better results. Okay, perfect. Um, <laughs> any particular joints that you think are would yield more or just one that it doesn't or went? You know, would you pick a, you know, a stifle joint because it has it, more fluid or? It's it's a good question, and uh, and I would say no, right? I, I would say pick the joints that you're comfortable with and try to okay. submit as many samples as you can, and then be friends with your clinical pathologist. That's a recommendation that I always <laughs> give veterinarians. Like, don't don't be a stranger. Pick it up. Talk to them about what you saw in the presenting patient, um, and then what they're seeing in their samples. Now let's go through the tests that um that might that people might choose um if they're you know if they're dealing with a clinical dog or like a screening test. Yep. Absolutely, and, and uh, I, I think I've probably made the point about why Lyme is confusing and which group of patients you're looking at, right, like the healthy dog that you're screening yeah. or the dog that has clinical signs. So I, so I won't go on and on about that, but, you know, they're – the tests are, they're all good, right? And that was one of the things that came out of the updated Lyme consensus statement this year at ACVIM. So regardless of which test you're picking, whether it's the SNAP40X, the Acuplex, the Multiplex, or the VetScan, they will all tell you if there are antibodies to Borrelia present. Um, two of the tests, like the Multiplex as well as the quantitative C C6, will also give you information about that might be helpful for establishing an antibody baseline. So they'll give you a numerical or quantified result, and that can sometimes be helpful and useful as well. And so I think that kind of summarizes the specific tests for Lyme, and, and I hope gives a bit of information about why and how or when you might choose those tests. Okay, so then how about interpreting the results? Where I think it gets really tricky. Um, so maybe it would be helpful to talk about the clinical dog versus the non-clinical dog. I think it really is, right? And I think, thank you, because that that's the biggest question, which is why did you run the test? Was it part of a healthy dog screen or because you thought right. the dog had clinical signs consistent with Lyme, so i.e. fever, polyarthropathy? And I think that really does help with the answer to that question. Um, it, it's also hard because the reality is is that dogs that have had an exodes tick attached to them for long enough, so you know, usually 48 hours or longer, they might remain antibody positive for some time, and, and that's even in a dog with clinical illness that you treat effectively or when a dog has successfully eliminated the bacteria. So all those tests, the ones that I just mentioned, you know, the 40X, the quantitative C6, the multiplex, the vet scan, hopefully I didn't forget any of them and make people mad, they're all based on antibody response. So they're likely going to be positive in dogs that have had a tick attached for greater than 48 hours. So it's not going to be useful to use that to determine whether your treatment was effective? No. And and I think that's a really important point as well, and, and thank you for raising it, because that gets into, you know, treatment and monitoring. So those dogs, a lot of them will stay seropositive for months, and some of them for years, and that's despite any microbial therapy. And if they did have clinical signs or Lyme disease, um, when if that resolves. So seropositive status should absolutely not be used to guide further therapy, right? It's antibodies. Perfect. Okay, so that's really important to know. Okay, yeah. so then, um, okay, so let's talk about the clinical dog. Um, what would your, um, yeah, how would you decide to treat based on 
So if you're, you know, the snap test is just, it's a yes or a no. Mm -hmm. um, but on your multiplex or on some of the other quantitative ones, they're giving you a, a cutoff number or something like that. So what, what's the, you know, at what point would you say, well, it's time to treat? Or, you know, this dog is clinical. It, it appears that, yes, it, it is positive. It, it does have Lyme disease. Yep, and and I think you you've answered the question. So for oh. me, it's it's clinical signs, right? And you know, I, I think I'm going to just jump a little bit ahead because it's mm -hmm. kind of the you know the sixty million dollar question that everybody wants, which is, you know, what what do I do with a dog that's healthy otherwise but seropositive? So do I treat that dog? Um, and, and there's so much controversy and debate around that topic of the seropositive healthy dog, and it really centers around the concern over protein-losing nephropathy, or if you want to use yeah. the term Lyme nephritis. And that's not a question that anybody knows the answer to. And even the ACVM Lyme consensus group is undecided on this point at that time, and, and our research is really hoping to shed some light on that because I think it's an answer that we all really want and need. And so much of this issue right now is a what-if. And, and nobody wants to be the what-if, right? Nobody wants to be the veterinarian who didn't give the doxycycline, and then that dog that was positive went on to develop Lyme nephritis, protein-losing nephropathy, and died. And the owners are really mm -hmm. sad, and so are you. We're all sad. On the other hand, doxycycline therapy isn't a completely benign thing either, and we mm -hmm. are in an age of antimicrobial stewardship where pros and cons of use have to be carefully weighed. Um, what I can say is what there does appear to be agreement on, which is that dogs that are seropositive for Borrelia should have their urine checked for protein. What's hard about that to see if they have proteinuria, what's really hard about that, though, is that nobody seems to know when to check the urine for protein, how long we should be monitoring for the emergence of protein in the urine, and if we do decide to treat that dog that's positive, for Borrelia um, that has protein in, a, in its urine, how long we're supposed to do that for. And, and that's not really helpful for any of us. Um, <laughs> but that is this current state of affairs. The other thing... Okay, I Michelle, I was really hoping for a hard and fast answer here. <laughs> I know, right? And, and I thank you for stopping me because it's what I get asked seriously at least once or twice a day. Right. And I feel bad every time that I tackle that question and I have a bit of a history of trying to take stuff on that makes me feel bad when I can't answer that question. Um, because it is, it's really hard and, and we all want to do the best thing we can for these dogs and I think right now jury's out. Okay. All right. Um, okay. So that's, <laughs> so that's good to know. Um, so as far as, yeah, so even when treatment should be instigated, it's not super-duper clear right now uh, is what I'm understanding. It's true. I mean, I think it is clear that if you have a dog that's positive, that has fever or polyarthropathy, it yeah. makes sense to treat that dog with now, doxycycline. Now, when you say positive, would you say, would you, so if you got a positive on a SNAP test, would you then follow up with a second type, a different modality of test to quantify that, or how, you know, how would you... Yep. Or just a, Fair yeah. enough, and, and a good question. Yeah, I, I would, because I would want to know from a monitoring perspective what happens to that antibody level after that dog is treated, hopefully appropriately and for the right condition that's causing its clinical signs. So doing a quantitative C6 or the multiplex would be useful.
useful information for me to see, one, what the antibody level is, so a quantifiable or numerical result, and then down the road if that level has come down. Um, it wouldn't make me treat that dog longer than mm -hmm. the recommended one month of therapy with doxycycline, but it would be useful information for me along with grabbing urine to assess for proteinuria and also okay. following up to see if that dog develops proteinuria because those are the ones that I worry about. Okay. Um, and you're, as far as the monitoring for proteinuria, so at, even after you finish treatment, um, you would follow up with urinalysis. How, how frequently would you recommend? Yeah, and, and that's, you know, again, that's hard because there isn't a clear answer for that. So I'm happy to go on record and say what I would do. The situation sure. is different depending on whether... At step one, you grabbed urine and there was protein there, or in 30 days you rechecked and there was protein in that urine. And my decisions at that point would be pretty different. So I would likely want to keep checking urine in a dog that I thought had clinical Lyme disease and proteinuria probably a couple times a year to see if that increased, decreased, or where things went or if it changed. But, you know, the thing about the urine is, and I always kind of grin a little bit when people ask me that, you know, grabbing a urine is always a good thing to do, right? That's useful information, particularly in an older pet. Right, yeah, yeah. It's never You're never going to go wrong with the urine. No, yeah. you don't go wrong. Look at the pee. Pee is good. Yeah, pee is great. Okay. <laughs> All right, another grid quote for the day. All right. Okay, now as far as treatment options, we talked a little bit about doxycycline, um, but I know in certainly in equine they're reaching for different drugs as well. Um, so are there so is doxycycline kind of the standard, or are there other ones that people are looking at, and what's the dosing regime for them? Yep, a good question. And yes, doxycycline is the standard, and it's what's recommended by the consensus group online at this moment in time. And the recommendation is doxycycline at 10 mg per kg, Q12 hours, or that dose once a day for 30 days. Um, for dogs that don't tolerate doxycycline, amoxicillin has been used, but I think we just don't have as much information about that, and the same is true for other drugs, so I, I can't advocate using other drugs. I also make a plug for dogs that are in pain that have shifting limb lameness because it is painful to provide analgesia, right? So think okay. about things like nonsteroidal or gabapentin in addition to rest. Okay, and or would you be reaching for like tramadol or something like that, or also a good option? Okay, excellent. And is is, is it true in dogs that there's a, kind of an anti-inflammatory effect on um, on the joints as well with treating with doxycycline? <laughs> yep. But okay. I, again, as that same mentor in Saskatoon used to tell me, if if I hurt my knee, I sure hope that somebody wouldn't prescribe me just doxycycline. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so it's not okay. a really black and white question. <laughs> right. And it's probably not like super profound, but okay. Yeah. No, no, it's good. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So then as far as um, prognosis after treatment, um, can you give us a bit of information about that? Yeah, and, and that's the nice thing about it, right? That's the happy part of this story. Um, for canine Lyme, the prognosis is sweet, right? It's typically excellent. These dogs have really mild illness, um, and it resolves completely and rapidly with effective therapy and appropriate duration. So the prognosis is really good. Like, this isn't something that's scary. Um, the tail for dogs with Lyme nephritis or a severely progressive protein-losing nephropathy, that's a different story altogether, and the prognosis is, is pretty dismal to them. Um, and that's, okay. again, why there's 
part of the controversy and emotion associated with this. But most dogs, um, which again is not many dogs, right? So 5% out of 95% that are ever positive respond really well and really fast and completely. Okay, perfect. Do you want me to launch into vaccines? Uh, go for it. Just do it. <laughs> All right, just do it. Batten down the hatches. So this is another really hot line topic, um, which is do I or should I recommend vaccines? And it's, again, I think another tough one because there isn't consensus on it right now by the internal medicine Lyme group. So there does appear to be consensus that vaccine products for Lyme these days are really safe, they're effective, and they have less side effects than they ever did before, along with a really a much longer or improved duration of immunity compared to before. Um, I think the counterpoint to the vaccine thing would be why would you vaccinate if a dog is unlikely to be exposed, it's unlikely to become ill, and I think the biggest one for me is for owners as well as veterinarians and vet clinic staff to be aware that a vaccine is not a, I vaccinated instead of using appropriate tick prevention. And, and I think that's a really important point, and I just keep hammering home tick prevention. Right. Okay. What resources are available for vets to provide to clients or for them to learn about Lyme disease uh, and educate themselves on, on what they should be doing and stay up to date in this ever-changing Lyme world? Yeah, and, and I think I'm going to reemphasize your last point there. It, it is changing, and particularly in a place like Canada where it is really emerging, right, and we're going to see more of it and people are going to talk more about it. And, and again, they're going to know more people that have also been affected with Lyme, and that always colors and flavors clinics' discussions, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Um, I'm also sympathetic to how much time you have in an appointment and the value of providing a resource <laughs> for a client in part to just give them something to read over and uh, in a nice way go away for a little bit <laughs> and then come back with hopefully some focused questions for you and your clinic staff to handle. So you guys actually have some really nice information on your site about Lyme. Yes, we do. I don't know if you want to mention that. It, it, it's a great place for people to go. I checked it out. Oh, good. I'm glad you did. Um, yeah. yeah, thanks very much for the for the plug. I'm glad you did. I didn't have to do a shameless plug myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if you go to the Owen website, oahn.ca, uh, you can either, uh, if you go to Networks and then click on Companion Animals, um, there's resource, you can take a look there. Um, there's also, if you click on Resources at the top and click on Companion Animals, it will be there also. Um, and then if you're a veterinarian, we have veterinarian-specific ones uh, in the login side. So as long as you're a veterinarian in North America, you can sign up for an account with us. Um, as long as we can verify that you have a license um, and you're not just pretending to be a veterinarian, um, <laughs> then you can have an account and log in to see our very exciting Lyme, uh, Lyme resources. So. No, they're they're great. Like I said, I checked them out. There's also, you know, a variety of disease maps or where is Lyme at type maps. And so yeah. Dr. Scott Weiss's Worms and Germs site has a map. Um, the CDC also has a map for humans. Um, the Companion Animal Parasit Group in 2015, they had a seroprevalence map. So those are all maps that people can go and look at. For resources more specific to learning about Lyme and where things are at, you know, I usually send people to the ACVIM or the Internal Medicine Consensus Statement on Lyme for yeah. 2006. Uh, you know, I was at the forum this year, and they did a—they were allowed to have a 30-minute let's 
we talk about this and not much has changed. It's not published yet, but it will be shortly and, and there's continued lack of consensus and, and not a lot more information and that's my take on things. Not not to slam the, these people because they're very well known and I respect them too, but I think again there's just a lot of things that we don't know. Um, for information on vaccines, the WASAVA group, so the World Small Animal Veterinary Association, has vaccine guidelines and they address Lyme vaccination and the specifics of when and how and all that good stuff. And then if anybody wants to learn more about Lyme nephritis or working up renal disease and prognosis, et cetera, et cetera, the IRS, so the International Renal Interest Society website, also ha is a great resource and there's an internal medicine consensus statement on that as well. Okay, great. Um, well, it's something, okay. it's something to to look at, right? And these, um, yeah. all of them are open access, and so you can send pet owners to those ones as well. That's great, yeah, if they want a little bit of light bedtime yep. reading, yeah. Yeah, light reading, um, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, we'll, um, yeah, and we'll post the links to those two with, together with the podcast in case you're interested if you're listening. Michelle, is there anything else you wanted to add uh, before we conclude it? No, I don't think so. I just uh, wanted to thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat about Lyme. Um, I like diseases that are wishy-washy and vague, and uh, Borrelia certainly falls into that category. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, again, like I said, I think most of all I'm really sympathetic to practitioners because it's hard and there's a lot of things that we don't know, and, and hopefully even if it doesn't help all that much, it at least makes people feel better knowing that they're not alone. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us today, and um, have a wonderful day. My pleasure. Take care.